We're in John chapter 10 tonight as we continue to, to learn and prayerfully consider what the Spirit has for us in the Gospel of John. We've come to really a very exciting point in our study because the public ministry of Jesus Christ is about to end. I don't mean the, 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 the final days of His life yet, although beginning from chapter 12 on is the final week at least in John's Gospel, of the life of Jesus Christ on the earth. So in just two chapters from where we are, Jesus will be in that final week of His life. And, and so tonight, just in our time together, I want to read for us, beginning in verse 30 of chapter 10, and continuing down through the end of the chapter. Jesus says, in verse, beginning in verse 30, I and the Father are one. And the Jews therefore took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said, you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, did you, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there, and many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. As we have been studying through the Gospel of John, I pray that it has been clear to all of us as we have been thinking through what John says that this book is full of statements concerning the fact that Jesus is in fact God. John wrote, of course, that we might believe that he is the Christ and that by believing we might have life in his name. And all throughout, John demonstrates the reality of His divinity over and over and over again. And truly as you survey the Gospel of John, there is no clearer a statement made throughout the Gospel than the one Jesus makes in verse 30 of chapter 10. You remember, as we have been studying, there have been those who are opposing Christ, demanding that He speak to them with plain language. That he tell them in the clearest fashion who he is. They were implying that he had not been clear at all. That his teaching and his words were veiled in some way. And that if he would simply just tell them in plain words who he was, then they would believe in him. And so Jesus speaks plainly. Jesus answers their cry. He answers their plea. He speaks plainly. First, it was to say that he had not only spoken plainly, but also that he had acted 
plainly. Not only were his words clear enough that they could understand, but also what he had done was clear enough. And I, uh, we, we surveyed last week a few places, at least throughout the Gospels, where we looked at what he did say and what he did do. But it was contrary to what they claimed. It was contrary to what they wanted. They didn't want to believe. They blamed Jesus for their lack of understanding because they simply refused to follow. It was their sin. It was them rather than Jesus Christ. It was them rather than clarity. It was them rather than evidence and more and more proof that caused their rejection and hostility to Christ. And then secondly, Jesus made it very clear that his sheep, those who are truly his, are characterized by certain traits. They're characterized by the reality that is based upon him knowing them. That they do hear his voice. They do believe. Hearing was that synonym for that reality. That they believe because they hear his voice and they know his voice and they follow or obey. And the reward is total security in life forever. It is eternal security. I give eternal life to them, verse 28 says, and they shall never perish. That is eternal security in its best state. And it's that last truth, that eternal security reality that leads to Christ's plain and clear statement about who he is. I and the Father are one. And so the Gospel of John is addressing that age-old question that all mankind must come to grips with in life. Is Jesus God? Is Jesus actually God? Is He who He said He was? Is Jesus divine? And we need to ask the question tonight, what does Jesus mean by the statement, I and the Father are one. What does he mean by that? Last time, I said that he does not mean that he is subservient to the Father. It does not mean that there is some kind of subservient relationship. He does not say the Father and me are one, as if he is some way subservient to the Father. If Christ were subservient to the Father, it might be said like that. But Jesus didn't say it like that. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. There is no subservience in his statement. Meaning, by implication, that God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit are co-equals. They are one in essence. They are, in fact, one God. And because nothing is greater, nothing can remove those who truly believe in Him from their care. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and the Father are one. And also we can say that Jesus means that they are one not only in essence, but they are one in will, one in desire, one in action. This really is implied in the overall context of Jesus' words. The will of both He and the Father is the same. 
And particularly in this case, the security of those that are his is both the will of the Father and the will of him. His sheep, he says, will never perish in verse 28. Not only because no one could snatch them from his hands, but they will never perish because no one can snatch them from the hand of his Father and he and the Father are one. In other words, there is perfect agreement. Perfect agreement of will between the Father and the Son, so that what the Father does, the Son does, and what the Son is doing, the Father is doing. So when we see Jesus, we see God. When we see Jesus, we know God. And so the statement must mean that Jesus is fully God. Because nothing else can explain the reaction of the Jewish leaders to Christ. Verse 31 says that they pick up stones again to stone him. Why would they want to stone Christ? Why would they want to remove Christ from the face of the earth in a physical way? Because violent hostility is always the natural reaction of unrepentant confrontation. That's what it is. Get rid of the truth. They knew that he was not only claiming to be one with God in desire, but also one with God in power. That meant that he was claiming full divinity. He was claiming that he, in fact, was God. But that's not the point I want to make tonight. The point that I want to make tonight is this. Just become because the claim is made does not mean that it's true. Now, I want us to listen very clearly to this because what we learn concerning Christ has great implications for us as Christians. Just because Jesus made a claim to be God is not the same as proving that He is God. The reason Jesus did what He did, the reason Jesus performed and and acted and lived the way he lived was because of the reaction of man to his claim that he was God. Jesus says, I am God. And men reject it. Men say it's not true. Men say that's false. Men say he's not God. False religions say he's simply the Son of God, that he's a God. And here they're even ready to commit murder in order to rid themselves of him because of his claim. But was there proof? Was there proof that he is in fact God? I think there is. And in the following verses, Jesus gives the answer. Here's what he says. Look at it in verse 32 to 39. The first thing that Jesus says is, I have done nothing that merits stoning. In fact, in fact, I have shown you many great miracles for which one do you stone me? Notice that in verse 32. I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? It's a great question. You've heard my claim. You've even seen what I've done. For which of the things that I've done are you stoning me? In other words, we cannot be sure of what Jesus claims until we see Jesus at work. You cannot be sure that someone is truly who they say they are until you see them in action. 
You may claim to be a great worker, but I cannot conclude with certainty that you are a great worker until I see you at work. So it is with these men. So it is with many today concerning Christ. He made a monumental claim. I am God. I and the Father are one. That's a monumental claim. That's a massive claim. I am God. So where's the evidence? Was it and is it verifiable by what he did? If you read your Bible, you clearly know the answer to that question. Jesus Christ healed the sick. Jesus Christ, as we saw in John's Gospel, healed a man born blind from birth. Jesus Christ fed the multitudes with a word. Jesus Christ made the lame walk. Jesus Christ raised the dead. And so Jesus is saying, for which of these, which of these authenticating works, which of these clear proving works were you rejecting me? For which of these are you going to stone me? And what did they say in answer to the question? Verse 33, the Jews answer him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. You see, their only response to Jesus' words and the proof by which Jesus showed them through His works, their only answer was to reverse the truth. Their only answer was to say to Jesus, your works aren't the problem. We have no issue with your works. What we have an issue with is your words. In other words... It's the hardness of their hearts that's the problem. It's not the works of Jesus that's the problem. It's not even His words that's the problem. It's the hardness of their hearts that's the problem. They're willing to skip over the fact that His works proved His words. Because hostility is the natural reaction to unrepentant confrontation. Hostility is the natural reaction of the sinful heart to Jesus Christ. Today you see the same thing happening. Every false religion has done this when confronted with the claim of Christ, when confronted with the reality of Jesus Christ and His deity. Every other religion in the world other than true Christianity does not believe Jesus Christ is in fact the God of very gods. Those who refuse to have the only living and true God in their lives, they voice that same argument over and over and over again. Oh, sure, they admit that Jesus Christ is a good man. Some say that Jesus Christ was a prophet. Some say that He was relatively good in His life, that He was even real. He did a lot of good things, but they will not accept Him as God. They won't even entertain the issue whether his works verify his claim. They'll just simply say he's not God. I remember reading of a woman who said this, quote, I do not doubt that Jesus was a good man and did many wonderful things, but I will not accept the claim that he is God. I will not follow him, unquote. It's quite a claim. I'll accept the fact that he is, in fact, a good man, that he was a real man, that he was not just a legend and a myth. But I will not accept the claim that he is God. Why? Because I will not follow him. The problem is not Jesus' claim. The problem is not Jesus' verifying works. The problem is 
a sin-sick, hardened heart. That's truly the issue, isn't it? The issue with any person isn't that Jesus is not who He says He is. I think the Bible is clear with that. It's just that many refuse to follow Him in spite of who He is. And so, because of this response from the Jews, Jesus, incredibly and out of graciousness to them, gives another argument. And you notice what He says in verses 34 to 38. Jesus answers them. Has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? If He called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of Him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, Believe the works that you might know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. The people were willfully rejecting Christ's words, willfully rejecting what he claimed, willfully rejecting his statement in verse 30. And so he shows them that his words did not condemn him either. They said, for your works we're not condemning you, but for your words. And he says, my words don't condemn me either. Now if we're not careful here, we might misunderstand his argument. So for us to understand it, we need to go back to Psalm 82 and verse 6 to see what is being said in those verses in context. Psalm 86 verse 2. Psalm of David and being spoken to the nation of Israel to trust in their Lord. And Psalm 86 says this, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. This is a prayer to God, for I am afflicted and needy. Do preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. O you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me. Am I in the right place? I'm sorry, Psalm 82.6. Although that was a great verse. <laughs> God takes His stand in His own congregation. Psalm 82. He judges in the midst of the rulers. That word rulers is the word gods. Little g, gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the wicked and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. And all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Rise, O God, and judge the earth. For it is you who do possess all the nations. You see, the context of Psalm 82 is God in the midst of His own people. In the midst of speaking to those who are ruling in His congregation. It's as if God is speaking to the church. 
God speaking to his people and to the rulers of the day, those who judge in the midst of them, those whom God had placed in authority, those whom God had placed over the people. They were not doing as they ought. They were judging unjustly. And God is speaking here to those appointed judges of Israel and he calls them gods, little g. You are gods. He's not calling them that because they are divine in themselves, but because they act and have been given a place of speaking on behalf of and ruling on behalf of God in their role as judges over the people. God had sent them a set them apart for a special task. They were to to rule in godliness. They were to do it in God's name. They were to do it according to His righteousness and according to His judgments. And yet they were exercising their authority and power in unrighteousness. So, you take that context and you go back to John chapter 10. Jesus is saying, I too have been sent and set apart by God for a specific task. And I have been sent by Him into this world to carry out that task. And if you call those who were sent by God to the nation of Israel, poking again the, the finger right in the eye of the ones He's talking to, these are the Pharisees. In other words, you call yourself gods because Psalm 82.6 says, Are you not gods? So if you call gods of those to whom the word of God came, and if scripture cannot be broken, cannot be changed, cannot be altered in any kind of way, then how in the world can you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said I am the Son of God. In essence, I must exercise authority, I must exercise power just like the judges of Israel. And if the word gods was good enough to represent mere men in light of their God-given function, if the judges can be called gods, then how much more should it be that I should be called God in the fullest sense? Since my commissioning and my exercise of power is much more unique than theirs. You see, Jesus isn't skirting the question. Jesus isn't trying to run around the end in order to avoid the conflict. He's only denying that any of his words that he spoke were blasphemous. I spoke no words of blasphemy. I'm just saying what the Word of God says about anyone who's in authority. The words are proper. If they are proper enough in relation to man, how much more appropriate they are for me. Who is more than man? But Jesus is asking them. So I hope we can understand the force of his argument. If it is good for the lesser, then it is definitely good for the greater. That's his argument. You being the lesser are called gods. If you being the lesser are called gods, how much more so than me who is the greater? So Jesus argues my works don't merit stoning. You even acknowledge they don't merit stoning and my words don't merit stoning either. 
So Jesus finally says to these men, if you will not believe my words, then believe my works. Right? If you do not, if I don't do the works of my Father, verse 37, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe my words, really is what he's saying, even though you don't believe me, then believe the works. You see, you may not believe my words, you may not believe my claim, you may not believe the, 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 the massive claim that I made for who I am, you may not believe those words, but even though you don't believe those words, at the very least, believe the works because they prove who I am. My words should be enough, but since you refuse to believe them, Thankfully, you acknowledge my works. And since you acknowledge my works, believe my works, because in them is proof of who I am. And I find this very telling and very implicational for us as Christians, because simply put this way, Jesus says, look at my life. It proves I am who I say I am. It proves my words, or my, yeah, my words. In other words, my works speak louder than my words. My works speak louder than my words. And I think in this entire interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees, this, this really hits home with us. When we think about Jesus Christ and we think about being followers of Jesus Christ. And when you think about the unbeliever. This is where his argument confronts all of us personally. Because it's easy for us to read this text and go, yes, okay, this clearly says that Jesus is God. And John is writing that so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Fine. Perfect. Okay, I get it. I believe that. But what does that mean now? What's it mean for the unbeliever who reads this? What's it mean for the believer who is reading this, who already knows Jesus Christ? How does this argument confront me right where I sit? Well, for the unbeliever, you have to answer the questions honestly. Can you truly accuse Jesus of sin in his life? The only answer to that is not truly. I mean, I might... Use that as an excuse for my unbelief. But in the truest sense, if you're really honest and intellectually honest with yourself, you cannot accuse him of sin in his life. His works prove he wasn't sinning. The, the Jews are trying to accuse him of sin. For a good work we don't stone you, but for blasphemy, that's sin. They're trying to accuse him of that, and yet, truly there's no accusation that can stick in his life. Can you truly find... That his works and his words are unsupported by his life? Not truly. Truly. All you can do is find that he did what he said. And his life is one that accuses your life. That's all you can really find. That Jesus Christ's words are true and Jesus Christ's works are true. And since both of those are true, he is true in everything that he said. And therefore his life accuses your life. All the unbelievers can truly confess is that very same thing. That the curious, claimed, 
The same thing in Christ's day is the same thing an unbeliever claims today. No one ever spoke like this man. All they can say is the same things you read down in John 10 verse 41. John performed a lot of signs, yet everything John said about this man was true. No one ever did what this man has done. That's all an unbeliever can actually truly claim. So the only response for the unbeliever is to turn from their rebellion and embrace Him as their Savior. That's the only logical response because Jesus is who He says He is. But we have to understand that there's an implication in this text for the Christian. For you and I who know Jesus Christ because Christ has placed a great deal of weight upon His works. Jesus Christ says, if you... If I don't do the works of my Father, then don't believe me. I mean, that's that's a huge weight. If I didn't do these things, if I don't do the works that, that I said I did, if you haven't seen those things, which you've already acknowledged, but, but if you try to deny those, then don't believe me. But, but if you don't believe my words, at least at the very least believe my works. That's a big weight. In other words, watch my life. I am who I say I am. Just watch my life play itself out. And although each and every person ought to believe his words, the real emphasis lies in his works. Because it is these that point to him. And that's the great argument. It's the very argument that hits so close to home for you and I who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because if it is true for Jesus that His works point to His authenticity, that His works point to actually who He is in His words. And it is also true for those who call themselves His followers. You see, if we are Christians, most of us here, I think, in this room would claim that we are Christians, that we know Jesus Christ by faith. If that is our claim, then we are claiming that we have been saved by Christ in such a fashion that His Spirit indwells us, His Spirit lives in us, and more than that, His Spirit directs our life and our choices. Apostle John understood this message. He wrote about it in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 3. Go there for a moment. 1 John chapter 3. Because we cannot leave John 10 without understanding this very issue. John says in 1 John chapter 3, it's the same author. says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. That doesn't mean you save yourself. That doesn't mean you you make yourself holy. That means a life lived in a way of holiness, a direction of holy living. That's what he's saying here. Everyone who has a hope in Jesus Christ, everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ, strives in this direction. Everyone, verse 4, who practices sin, also practices lawlessness. 
Why? Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness going against the moral law of God. Living against God. Living in unrighteous life. Living and making choices in life that have everything to do with unrighteous things. Everyone who practices lawlessness is practicing sin. And you know, verse 5, that He appeared in order to take away that. Because in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him sins. He doesn't mean you're perfect now in the way that you never sin. What He means is you do not go on practicing sin in that way. Your life is different. Your life is like Christ. The outworking of your life matches the the profession of your words. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Why? Because He's righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. Why? Because the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that He might destroy the works of the devil. You notice He didn't say He appeared that He might destroy the words of the devil. No, the works. Because it's easy to say things. It's it's hard to produce things. Our works show who we really are. No one who is born of God practices sin, verse 9, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot do that because he's born of God. So by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God nor the one who does not love his brother. You see, that's the outworking of practice. You see, that's the reality of following Jesus Christ. Go back to John 10. Jesus said, if you don't believe my words, fine, but at least, at the very least, believe my works. My works speak louder than my words. Who I am in my very actions speak louder than what I said. You should believe what I said, but even if you won't believe that, believe what I did. Well, that confronts us as Christians. Do you live like that? Is there evidence in your life that the Spirit truly lives in you? Jesus says that this should be true of those who claim to know Him. We are like Him. He will say in just a few chapters, John 14, verse 12, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. In other words, they will be like me. Will we ever be practically perfect this side of heaven? The answer to that is no. There's no way that you and I will ever be perfect and sinless this side of heaven in practice. We are guiltless before God because of the righteousness of Christ. But sinless this side of heaven? Absolutely not. We live in a sinful world. We still sin. But for that reason alone, we must draw close to Christ and be strengthened through Him in order to not be overcome by sin. As our one author put it, I think this is a, a good illustration to just kind of tie our thoughts together and just close our time down. He said this, metaphorically... Jesus is the Son. Not S-O-N, but S-U-N. Metaphorically, He's the Son. When He was in the world, He said, I am the light of the world. And when He was thinking about leaving 
or about his leaving, he turned to those whom he was leaving and he said, you are the light of the world. But they were not sons, S-U-N-S, they were lesser sons, moons, he said. He said, you see, the moon reflects the light of the sun. So we too, being those who are followers of Jesus Christ, we are to shine and we can only shine by reflecting His light. He's the sun. We reflect Him. When we reflect Christ in our lives, when our life of obedience is the reflection of His righteousness in us, we reflect that as we obey Him, then we show who and whose we are. We are of Him. James said it this way. You say you have faith? I say I'll show you my faith by my work. Our works speak louder than our words. That's how it is for each of us who follow Christ. Because Jesus said this, therefore, verse 39, they were seeking again to seize Him. In other words, not only do we not believe your words, we don't even believe your works. Total, utter rejection. Are you like Christ? Your works reflect your words. We'll get to see more next time. As Jesus then goes to Bethany and raises the dead. Amazing, an amazing passage. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for our time tonight. Testimony of your people and how you have changed their lives through the impact of your word. We're thankful for the testimony of our Savior Jesus Christ, clearly who He is, clearly that His words were not blasphemous, clearly that His works were not blasphemous in any kind of way, and the only reason men don't believe is simply because they refuse. We know You are God. Not only did Your words profess that, but Your works clearly show it, and so we believe By belief, You have given us Your Spirit to live in us that we might reflect You. So help us to do that. Lord, may may our lives not be a contradiction of the very words we speak. May we be like You. If you don't believe my words, at least believe my life. May our lives be a reflection of the true relationship we have with You. May we not be practicers of sin, but rather may we practice righteousness. Thank you for the faithful testimony of John as he teaches these people and us the reality of who you are, that we might believe you are indeed the Christ, Son of the living God, and by believing we might have life in your name. Lord, use us now as a testimony for your glory and grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.